This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Teal Talk Radio, Season 5, Episode 12. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 12 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funihetten and Randy Ziganfus, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziganfus. And I'm Lynn Funihetten. Good morning. Good morning, Lynn. Who we got today? So, looking forward to this conversation, our conversation with Richard Gerver about school change and his book, uh, which we've recently read change learn to love it learn to lead it so really looking forward to this conversation Um, a little bit more about Richard he has been described as one of the most inspirational leaders of his generation Uh, he's an award-winning speaker best-selling author and world-renowned thinker Uh, Richard began his career in education most notably as headmaster of the failing Grange primary school and Richard has since transition to the global stage where he uses his trademark humor and natural style to deliver passionate, provocative, and authentic speeches. Um, He's joining us today from UK, and he mentioned that he's headed to Dubai to do some speaking tomorrow. So we're glad that we could catch him today as he draws upon some of his firsthand experiences and unique insights um, from frontline education to explore the links between great leadership, human potential, change, and innovation. So welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thank you very much, and thank you for that extraordinary introduction. It's like my mom wrote it. That's, uh, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> well, based on our little pre, pre-podcast conversation, we can tell uh, you definitely are inspirational. So uh, oh, we're well, looking forward to some more inspiring conversation here. So let's start our conversation today with a, how about a personal story about how you got connected to this idea of school change? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Like so many things in my career, um, these things all happen by accident. And often um, when you you look back on on moments in your professional life and reflect on why things work, why things didn't work, and as you grow and learn um, about more about the world around you, you know, those things come into focus. So I left uh, my principal's position in 2007. Um, it was never a plan. I didn't leave school because I was fed up of the system and, and burnt out or any of those things. Uh, we'll come back to it maybe in a, a later question. But, uh, but um, my mentor suggested it was time for me to challenge myself in a new way. When I left, uh, there was never a plan or a particular fascination with change as a specific topic. 
But as I reflected, given distance and time away from my time as a principal, um, and as I started to see and experience the challenges people were facing, not just in education, but outside of it, I realized that um, I had spent most of my adult life in the company of people who were experts on change. Um, and <laughs> most of the chagrin of the adults I was working with and talking to at the time, um, I realized that those experts tended to be under five years old. Uh, because <laughs> having spent all of my teaching career in elementary schools and schools that uh, always had early years facilities, um, and reflected on just how extraordinary very young children are, you know, how much they embrace change, how um, curious they are, how happy they are to take risks and laugh at the mistakes they make and bounce back, um, how incredibly resilient they are. You know, when you're a very young child, almost every experience you face is new. There's no such thing as, as fixed routines and systems and structures and things you're comfortable with. Um, and really, the further distance I got from that, and the more I realized the older people got, particularly into adult life, the more we struggle with change. And I guess that's where the fascination came with and was really the provided the motivation for wanting to explore change in a little bit deeper sense and, and uh, you know, in a, in a more researched and nuanced way. Mm hmm. So thinking about um, all of your personal experiences and you've started to collect those and share some insights in this book that you've written, Change, Learn to Love It, Learn to Lead It, uh, before we get into some of the content of the book, talk to us a little bit about how the sections are organized. Um, because as I read the book, I, I found that to be really powerful. You know, the personal stories, the, ch the challenges, and even your change app suggestions at the end. So um, give us a little bit of an overview of why, how it's organized and, and why you chose to organize it in that way for the reader. Sure. Well, one of the things that I've always been passionate about is that I want to make sure that communication is is simple and straightforward. And one of the things that I was looking at when I was doing the research, not just for the book, but, you know, in terms of referencing and developing my own leadership through my time in education, were so many of the books I read were incredibly complicated. Now, that might just come across to me that way because of my own lack of, of intellect. Um, but, you know, it, I, I often came away from either sessions of listening to expert speakers or reading uh, books that people suggested to me feeling more confused and more intimidated than I was before I went into them. And I think one of the things that, you know, we learn early on, don't we, as, as teachers and as educators, is that if you can keep a concept simple and then you can humanize it, uh, it gives people a far greater opportunity to connect to, to what it is you're trying to get across. And so in all of my writing and, and the books I've written, and particularly with this one, I wanted to humanize change. I wanted to move away from this idea of deep psychology. I wanted to move away from academia. I wanted to humanize it in such a way that I kind of used my own personal experiences, my personal reflections, and my personal stories to open up, if you like, a concept that people could emotionally connect to, and then unpick it a little bit. So the change apps at the end of each chapter um, are designed specifically for that. People engaging, hopefully, in the chapters, reading simple elements around um, change around um, 
how we feel about change, but then the apps are kind of action points that people can take and, and immediately try stuff out. But, but I wanted it all to be straightforward, simple, and emotionally connected. Because I think the more I started to reflect on change, the more I realized, you're going back to what I just said to you, this reflection of how come as young kids we're so good at it and as we get older, we find it tougher. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to explore the human experience rather than anything too intellectual and, and academic. And, and really, I hope that's what, what comes across in the structure and, and the flavor of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is definitely very real and, and practical and um, more of a, a narrative than an academic, really challenging read. So it was easy to connect to and think about some of those action steps quickly. And I mean, you know, the other thing, by the way, the app thing came to me because um, it was a different conversation. It wasn't necessarily about this book, but I remember somebody once asking me, um, about what my vision for the future of school would look like. What would a future school look like, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years hence? And it's one of those classic moments, you know, where wisdom comes in hindsight. I can't remember the answer I gave on the, it was a live radio interview. I can't remember the answer I gave at the time, but it was never as clever as the answer I should have given. And the answer I should have given when I reflected about it was in a way, for me, the education system in the future should look a bit like an app store, right? Where if you think about a smart device, a smartphone, for example, there are basic skills and basic functions that a smartphone delivers. There are things it, it it's a given it just is able to do. But the genius of a smart device and an app store that connects to it is that you download different apps at different times in your development, in your life, in your... So, so, for example, if you're about to go on holiday to a country you've never been to before, you might, you might download a couple of apps which are info apps around the place you're going to or specific to that experience. But when you get back from that holiday, you might delete those apps because you now need something different. Mm -hmm. And so there was a whole thing that started to emerge in my own, my own thinking that education in the future should maybe look like a smart device or an app store where we're teaching core basic skills to kids so that they have the abilities to be you know numerate literate all those sorts of things but then also you wanted to be able to provide them the opportunity to take on new skills and new things as they need them and then as they needed new and different things as their life cycles and develops that would happen too so that's really where the idea for the app came from. Now, that was my explanation. The <laughs> publisher liked it. The publisher liked it because they thought it was a great marketing ploy. But I'll stick with my explanation. <laughs> <laughs> so this idea of human-centered change fits in well with what we've been working on here in our school district and becoming more learner-centered in the classroom. And then if you magnify that to the organizational level, it's it's... Um, looking at everyone as a learner and really approaching it from the way that you described it as um, certain needs on the starting with the individual rather than this idea of what does the system need to change and we're going to conform to that let's do it the other way around um, so making some connections there well one I mean it's absolutely right you know one of the things I, I talk about in the book and, and actually has been a bit of a mantra for me I think since my time as as a school principal is that the, the more I see, the more I realize that systems and structures change nothing. People do. 
Um, and by the way, I had the most extraordinary experience uh, in the summer, actually. Um, I got the opportunity to meet and share a stage with um, the, your former president, Barack Obama. And one of the things that he was talking about that kind of really resonated for me on that was he was reflecting on his time in the White House. And he said, you know, in my eight years in the White House, what I realized was almost none of the problems I had to deal with were technical by nature. When you strip them, they were all human. And I think that speaks really powerfully to, to that point, Randy, you know, that that when we deal with change, I think one of the, the reasons why people find it something they almost resist, you know, change is one of those words that people's hackles go up. People immediately go on the defensive because I'm not sure they're hearing what we think they're hearing. What tends to happen as an adult when you hear the word change is your reflexes, but that means you're going to expect me to work harder, do more, be more intense, um, or what you're also saying to me is what we're doing already doesn't work and you want us to, to move it on and evolve it again. Mm -hmm. And so it feels very much to people like it's something that's done to them. And I think that's particularly the case um, in the education space, where educators almost from time immemorial have every time they hear the word change, what they hear is policy. So in other words, somebody higher up the food chain than me is going to come along and tell us to do it differently. And usually what that means is they want us to work harder. And so it's doing more and more almost of the same stuff, but more intensively, and it's more intervention, and it's more stuff on top of my workload. And I think that human swing to actually saying, because of course the power of a, uh, of, of a classroom with group of engaged learners is they don't feel that the learning is being done to them. They feel that they're participants in the process of learning. And I think change has to have that, that same parallel. But skilled leadership and skilled leadership in education is that ability to translate that process. So teachers and educators don't feel that the change is being done to them, but they're participants in the process. That by its nature makes people feel that it's more proactive, that they're more directly involved, and therefore it's progressive, which means people feel they have a role to play in that, that evolution of, of the change process. Mm -hmm. And I think human nature then says, I'm happy to be engaged in that. Mm -hmm. And change is learning. And we naturally have an inclination to learn and be curious and, and grow in a that way. And how do we tap absolutely. into that? You know, and, and you go back to the analogy about young kids. You know, young kids learn as voraciously as they do because nobody's told them that getting stuff wrong is a bad thing yet, mm -hmm. right? So... To, and and you, know, you go right back to when our children are uh, tiny toddlers, you know, and they're building the little block tower out of wooden blocks or what have you. And they spend 10 minutes building this huge block and then it falls over, right? And we sit there as parents or grandparents answer. And we go, uh-oh, and we laugh and the kids laugh and they go straight back to trying again. They're learning. They're not scared of making mistakes. And they see the whole process as evolutionary. And I think that's partly the problem with change and particularly with change in education. We've lost the connect. Change in education for most of us in most of our experiences doesn't feel evolutionary. It feels like a fait accompli. We're presented with something. We're told to learn to deliver it. And then we're told to deliver it. And then we're measured against 
importance to that delivery. So it doesn't have quite that same excitement, that evolutionary process to it, which gives you the engagement. So in your book, you mentioned some key ideas about the process of change and and making connections to those key ideas and what you're sharing right now and the importance of engagement. You know, why is it important for us to think about explicitly those ideas and the process um, as leaders and as learners? I think that the most important thing around the nature of change is the first and, and, and both challenging and freeing concept is that you can't control change. And the one thing that's rehearsed that we as educators have spoken about for many years now is that the world is changing exponentially, quicker and quicker and quicker. And you know, part of the entire process of formal education um, is to help prepare our kids for the challenges of their future. Mm-hmm. But if that future is constantly turning, you know, the world's evolving, and as I say, it's a rehearsed line, we've, we've used that narrative for a long time. We need to understand in education that the days of creating a new curriculum or a new system of assessment or a new system of teaching, which lasts for five or 10 years in a school or an organization, really is in effect has gone. Because if we put all of that energy into producing a system and then implementing that system, by the time we've implemented it in in our schools, it's already out of date. So the challenge is we have to create environments which are capable of sustained and constant change, of constant self-reflection. The ability as educators to process information all the time Mm -hmm. and to allow ourselves to keep graduating and developing our classrooms, our teaching and learning and the environments in in which we're working for our students. And that's a very different skill set. So that isn't about a sudden quick fix, here's the new strategy. What that means is that we first of all have to understand why we find change so hard. And then we need to understand how we can recalibrate ourselves and our contexts and the way we see the world so that we can embrace change better. You know, that, that to me has been partly the problem. We talk a lot in education and have done for 15, 20, maybe more years about creativity and being more open and more developmental. But what we've forgotten is that we have to change the context for the people working in the education space. So they start to see the process differently. And then that comes down to a leadership challenge. Because so, for example, you know, as a school leader or as an administrator, you can't walk into a room full of educators and go, we're going to change tomorrow the way we see everything. We're going to be creative and we're going to be curious because we've made that mistake. And actually what happens is half the room are excited by it, you know, but the other half are terrified by it because they have no context to understand how to frame that or what it looks like in the reality of their situation in a classroom. So in your in your book, there are lots of, uh, I will say, quotes that resonated with us. And I want to pull one from the section on transmit. And you say this, if you have embraced the nature of change and mastered the process of change, then it should happen imperceptibly like the daily growth of a child. So tell us, what's your thinking behind behind those words? I think, again, you know, when I look back on my career as an educator, the number of major conventions I went to (laughs) where people would stand on a stage and tell me the time is now and we're going to chant the theme would be transformation or, you know, (laughs) education for the 21st century. And by the way, 
isn't it time we stop talking about education for the 21st century? Because the kids being born now might well be alive in the 22nd century. We kind of missed that boat. But that, in a way, is is my point, you know, um, that, that somehow change is, is always prefaced with a big fanfare. And we're going to gather together and we're going to create change and then we're going to go away and make it happen. And and what we've got to do, going back to what I've just said, is is... We need to create something that is graduated, that is nuanced, that is constant, and that is sustainable. And in order to do that, change shouldn't be a big fanfare moment, a big convention where we spend two days celebrating the new ideas, going away and, you know, and implementing it. And by, by goodness, by the way, how much do our teachers dread the day? that their administrators and principals go off on a convention because when they come back from their convention, most teachers already sat there going, Oh, go on then. Tell us, tell us the new idea. Um, and, come on. And, yeah. Come on. Here we go. Right. I mean, I'm guilty of doing it too. I mean, it's why I've moved from sitting in the audience to being on the stage. At least now I can deliver the message and don't deal with the headache of the aftermath. It's a bit like being... <laughs> It's a bit like being a grandparent, right? You go in, you create chaos. You but the, the thing for me that fascinated me, first of all, was that research into the whole Japanese industrial idea of Kaizen, you know, small, small changes, incremental changes. And, and that really, the, the idea that, that we should create a change culture that grew from that, because I think it's an aspiration, by the way. I think if we get it right, that's how change should feel, that we're having micro conversations in our school, that we're creating cultures of action research, where teachers are constantly tweaking and nuancing, maybe collaborating with colleagues and just trying small things differently on a, on a daily, on a weekly, on a monthly, on a semester basis, so that it doesn't feel like the big fanfare, the big show, the big presentation that leads to something dramatic, which six months later is out of date and changed again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we, all of us who have been lucky enough to have young children grow in our families will know what I mean when I say, you know, you don't see the daily growth in your child, but when you look at a photo of them that you took six months ago, you suddenly realize how far you've come, how mm -hmm. far that child's grown. And for me, that's how change should feel like. Hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that. And it certainly is a, a good way to put it into pers um, to put it into perspective, that daily growth of a child that you don't <laughs> see, but a few years down the road, you certainly have it very, it's right there in front of you. Oh, boy. And the next thing you know, they're off to college and demanding money from you. And you think, boy, where did that come from? Mine's demanding money now. <laughs> <laughs> so, Richard, before we invite you to share what's next for you or what you're working on right now, um, we'd like to hear your ideas about a couple of quick lightning response questions. And the purpose of these questions is to really get some more resources or extend the learning for our listeners. Um, so who's one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about change in schools? Well, look, this might not be uh, new and it might be a name that everyone's heard before, but it's very personal. I'll, I'll give you the name, then I'll explain why. So the expert for me is Sir Ken Robinson. Mm -hmm. um, now, you know, that is a name that's pretty much universally known by everybody. But, but why for me in particular is because I met Ken before he became... Ken, do you know what I mean? Before he became the global megastar of education he became. 
Um, and he was a very powerful mentor for me. He was a friend, a critical friend. Um, but also what, what you realize about Ken's work is just how humanizing it is around the complex issues I'm talking about. And I think if people haven't discovered his work beyond the TED Talk, they should. They should read deeply into his research and his work because I think it's very human, very real, very deeply researched, and I think can have a real impact on everybody in the same way it did me. All right. We will add him to the show notes. Um, if you were recommending one book beyond change, what that what might that book be? Okay. Well, this is this is a new book, so I'm hoping it's going to be available. If it isn't already, it should be in the next few weeks, months in in the U.S. It's written by a friend of mine. It's called The Ten Traits of Resilience: Achieving Positivity and Purpose in School Leadership. Now, the reason that book's really important to me. One, it is because it, it's by a dear friend of mine, a, a chap, James Hilton, a former school principal who actually lived through two breakdowns on the job, fought back through them. And the book is all about the 10 traits he wished he'd known about when he went into leadership. Because I think one of the things that we don't talk about enough is that the complexity and challenge in our schools has always been heightened, but I think it's particularly so now. Um, I think the rate of change and, and everything we've talked about is so uh, exacerbated now. One of the things we don't talk en about enough, I think, are the um, resilience and, and mental health security of our school leaders. And what this book does is talk to with great honesty and great reality and really constructively how as school leaders we can prepare ourselves emotionally and physically to deal with that ongoing challenge of leading really, really complex organizations. All right, great, thank you. Found that and uh, linked it into the show notes. And um, what other online site or resource or person do you regularly learn with or from in the, the course of your daily adventures? Well, there's again, and listen, I'm doing this because, you know, in the spirit of uh, transatlantic uh, sharing, yes. there's a, there's a fantastic resource online um, that I think is global, but started here called Teachers Toolkit. And the website is teacherstoolkit.co.uk. Um, the founder is a chap called Ross McGill. Um, but it's an, an amazing online resource. So it does a whole range of things. Um, there are a huge number of contributors now um, where you've got educators talking about real practice in their classroom, sharing the resources they're building and making as they're going along. And one of the things I'm very conscious of, the further away from being a school principal, and if you like at the chalk face I am, is wonderful support from other practitioners. And so Teachers Toolkit is the most brilliant and very rich resource for people practicing in their schools, really practical, really easy to implement, and just a massive range of stuff on there. So well worth visiting for people. Sure. So looking at it now, and I can see there's resources and training and podcasts and books and blogs and even jobs. So lots of uh, content there for oh. people to visit and and learn about um, more. 
it's a Pandora's box, really. It's a superb place. You can get lost in there, huh? Mm-hmm. Oh, Rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> All right. So to wrap up our conversation today, Richard, which we will say we have enjoyed tremendously, what is next for you? What are you working on that you'd like to share with everybody? Oh, I'm actually working on a new book. It's my fourth book. Um, and in a way, it's it's bringing everything I've experienced throughout my adult working life back together with a sharp focus on education. So I started writing it a year ago. Um, I left uh, my job as a principal 10 years ago now, and I thought it was um, a really great opportunity for me to write this book. So the title of the book is Education, a Manifesto for Change. Uh, It comes out in May, June, and is being published by by Bloomsbury, who published Harry Potter. Just thought I'd slip that in. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but um, basically, I decided that the last 10 or 11 years, I've spent, you know, traversing not just the education space, but a whole range of other spaces too, professional sport, high-level performing business and industry, the arts. Every step of that journey, because I'm once an educator, always an educator, the number of times I've reflected and thought, I wish I'd known that when I was in school. So the new book is basically that. All the experiences I've had over the last decade and all the times I've gone, I wish I knew that in school. So that's what I'm finishing off at the moment. I'm just working on on the final edits which is a bit like handing in your homework. Um, And so I'm just working my way through that at the moment. And as I say, hopefully that'll be up in the early summer. So we'll look forward to to seeing that, Richard. And hopefully reconnecting again around that. I would love to. I would love to come back and and talk to you about that when it's out and and open for people to buy. Exciting. Well, thank you so much for sharing uh, with us today and joining us, Richard. We appreciate your time. And uh, we have linked some resources for our listeners, um, your blog and website. They can check you out on Twitter, a link to the book, and some of the resources you recommended, um, Sir Ken Robinson, James Hilton's book, and that website that is packed full of resources. Well, listen, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. A pleasure for us as well. Each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation. This episode's question, how will you explore, challenge, hypothesize, experiment, and learn to best lead change? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for Season 5, Episode 12. And that's all for now. We'll be back soon with another conversation featuring another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Richard. Thanks, Richard. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash B-E 
to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E.